there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. And later on, he shall make it glorious. By way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine upon them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall make great their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall shatter the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their taskmaster is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior and the rumbling of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This Christmas season, we are focusing our attention on the four titles that Isaiah ascribes to the Messiah in Isaiah 9, 6. Last week we considered wonderful counselor as we explored the wisdom of God made manifest to us in the person of Christ. The second messianic title Isaiah provides us with here in verse 6 is mighty God. We will examine both sides of this title starting with the concept of might. This word translated might here in the English is the Hebrew word gibor. It occurs 159 times in the Old Testament. We can define gibor biblically as victorious valor in war. It carries military connotations, specifically describing those who, through courage and strength, destroy their enemies. A brief survey of its usage throughout the Old Testament yields some interesting observations. Observation number one, if you're taking notes this morning. Observation number one, the word gabor is normally used to describe men, not God. By far, the most common usage of Gabor in the Old Testament is to describe the elite warriors of Israel who served during the reigns of both David and his son, Solomon. These men were the Spartans, the Navy SEALs of ancient Israel. It's number one. It's normally used to describe men. Observation number two. Gabor is normally used to indicate victorious strength in battle. David is described as Gibor after slaying Goliath. 
Gideon is described as Gibor after defeating the Midianites, an event which Isaiah alluded to just a few verses prior in verse 4. Number one, Gabor describes men. Number two, Gabor indicates victorious strength in battle. Number three, Gabor is used to describe multiple individual men in the messianic lineage, the heritage of Christ. Boaz and David both are specifically described as mighty men of valor and excellence in the Old Testament. Now, Isaiah has all three of these conventions, all three of these normal ways of use in mind as he writes here in Isaiah 9-6. Now, he writes in keeping with two of these conventions. His meaning is the same, but he breaks one of the conventions, one of these three things that we've just seen. So let's start with this broken convention. The, the way that Isaiah uses Gibor here that is different from the rest of the Old Testament. As we saw, number one there, that the, the Old Testament lexicon, the Old Testament dictionary, typically reserves Gabor to describe men. Only a handful of times is it used to describe God. In fact, less than 5% of the times that this word appears in the Old Testament does it describe God. Isaiah 9 is one of these. We must ask, therefore, why does Isaiah break with convention? Why does Isaiah use this word in a way that it is not normally used in the Old Testament? I believe we have two reasons. Two reasons that Isaiah breaks from convention when he uses this word not to describe a man, but to describe God. Number one, he is eager to describe this Messiah as equally true God and true man by deifying a word typically reserved for mere mortals. Isaiah is asserting that this Atlian child Messiah who bears the government on his shoulders in this child, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This makes Isaiah 9.6 then foundational for that ancient creedal affirmation. This child Messiah is true God of true God, light from light eternal, begotten, not created, of one substance with the Father. That's number one. Isaiah is eager to describe the Messiah as true God and true man. Number two, Isaiah is eager to distinguish this Messiah from those who were mighty in wickedness. Gabor is not exclusively a positive term in the Old Testament. It was used to describe Saul, the vengeful first king of Israel. It was used to describe Goliath, the pagan champion who faced David in battle. It was also used to describe the children of the Nephilim in Genesis 6 who were so evil that they brought a flood of judgment upon the world. By compounding Gabor, Mighty into Gibor El, mighty God. Isaiah is saying that this Messiah is not just a mighty man, but the mighty God. Isaiah is distinguishing this particular mighty man as the true and better mighty man the ultimate warrior who will lay waste to his enemies fully and finally. Now, 
let us consider how Isaiah speaks in keeping with some of these Old Testament conventions surrounding this word. We saw the broken one, that it's normally used to refer to men, but Isaiah uses it to refer to God. Gabor indicates victorious strength in battle. By describing the Messiah this way, Isaiah is indicating to his readers and to us that the coming Messiah will crush his foes in battle. Isaiah is therefore calling us back to the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel in which Yahweh promises the serpent in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. From the earliest passages of the scriptures onward, the expectation is that the seed of the woman, the child Messiah, will vanquish that prince of darkness grim, that ancient dragon, that belly-going tempter destroying him once and for all and ridding his people and his creation of Satan's power and presence forever. When Isaiah describes the Messiah as mighty God, he is describing the Messiah as a victorious warrior. What a great... uh, Exclamation point on my second point there. Finally, it's like the the bells of heaven are ringing forth, calling forth heaven's holy warrior. (laughs) Finally, number three, Isaiah is calling our attention to the rich heritage of this word as it is used to describe men of particular valor and character in the Old Testament. We have four examples of specific men in the Old Testament that are all described as mighty men of valor. And I believe that Isaiah has all four in mind as he proclaims the coming of this mighty and divine child Messiah. The first figure is Gideon. Judges chapter 6 verses 11 and 12. Then the angel of Yahweh came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to preserve it from the Midianites. Now listen to this. This is verse 12. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him and said, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, we don't have time to get into Gideon's full story this morning, but I do want to highlight some relevant parts of the narrative. First, if you write down Judges 6, you can read the whole story. First, Gideon functions as a priest. When he offers the goat and the flower and later the bull and ultimately builds an altar in Judges 6. Gideon is neither an ordained priest nor a Levite, Yet God calls upon him to offer sacrifices. Second, this is interesting, Judges 6.34, the Holy Spirit descends upon Gideon to empower him to his ministry. Third, in Judges 7, this is the most famous part of Gideon's story and the part that is referenced by Isaiah in verse 4, Gideon leads a ragtag team of 300 men against the army of Midian, specifically so that 
Israel would not honor themselves, saying that their own hand had saved them, according to Judges 7-2. This is the most well-known part of Gideon's story and certainly the most significant. So what is Isaiah saying in Isaiah 9-6 as it relates to Gideon? One, the God-child will be a priest, offering sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. Two, the God-child will be indwelt with the Holy Spirit as the source of his might. Three, the God-child will conquer his enemies under unbelievable circumstances, not from a position of strength, but from a position of humility. That's Gideon. The next figure in this rich heritage comes just a few chapters later in Judges. His name is Jephthah. Judges 11.1 says this, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead became the father of Jephthah. Again, we won't plumb the details of Jephthah's story, but I want to highlight some key points. First, Jephthah was the son of a harlot. He was born under questionable moral circumstances. Second, Jephthah's early life was marked by exile. Judges 11, 2 through 6 teach us that Jephthah was driven out of his father's house and forced to live in exile for many years. Third, through the latter part of Judges 11, Jephthah functions as a prophet, declaring the word of God to the people of God, and indeed even to the foreign nations as he declares the word of God to the nation of Ammon. Additionally, this is for free, we also find that the Holy Spirit indwelt Jephthah, giving him strength for his work in Judges 12.1. Isaiah therefore calls upon the narrative of Jephthah to teach us some additional things about the God-child. Number one, the God-child will be born under circumstances of questionable morality. Number two, the God-child will be a man of exile, estranged from his people. Number three, the God-child will be a prophet, declaring the word of God both to Israel and to Gentile nations. We've got Gideon, we've got Jephthah, and now we come to Boaz. Ruth 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a mighty man of excellence of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Let's examine some highlights from Boaz's life. First, Boaz is the perfect lawkeeper. The narrative structure of the book of Ruth highlights Boaz's perfect obedience to the law of the kinsman redeemer laid out by Moses in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Likewise, the author of Ruth highlights Boaz's perfect obedience to the law of generosity laid out for us in Deuteronomy 26, 12, which commands Israel to feed the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner out of the first fruits of their crops. Ruth herself is an orphan, a widow, and a foreigner. And by allowing her to glean in the fields, Boaz acts in perfect obedience to the law 
of Moses. That's number one. Boaz is the perfect law keeper. Number two, Boaz's entire narrative arc in Ruth is likewise centered around the redemption of a poor, orphaned, widowed, foreign bride whom he takes for himself, bringing her into his house and blessing her beyond her wildest imagination. This is only fitting, seeing as in Hebrew, the name Boaz, I am not making this up, the name Boaz in Hebrew means mighty husband. By calling upon the character and actions of Boaz, Isaiah is teaching us two things about the God child. The God child will be the perfect law keeper. The child called mighty God will obey the whole law and never stumble, not even in one point. Two, the God child will redeem his bride for himself and bring her into the blessings of his house. Gideon, Jephthah, Boaz. Now we come to David. First Samuel says this in chapter 16, verse 18. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician. And here it is. A mighty man of valor, a warrior, one who is understanding in speech, and a man of fine form, and the Lord is with him. There is no doubt that the life of David teaches us much about who his true and better son would be, and to study that in depth would take years. We only have a few moments this morning, so for today I just want to focus on two critical aspects of who David was as Isaiah appropriates David's character in describing this mighty God child. Number one, David was a shepherd. He made his flock to lie down in green pastures. He led them beside still waters. He led his sheep in good and right paths. He was with his flock even through the valley of the shadow of death. And David's flock knew that as long as he was there, they had nothing to fear. He fed them, he protected them, and he brought them through hardship and trial. David was a shepherd Number two, David was a king. Gideon, Jephthah, and Boaz all had king-like qualities. David actually fulfilled the office. He ruled over his people with wisdom and integrity. He conquered the enemies of his people and of his God, and he reigned over Israel after God's own heart. Therefore, Isaiah seeks to teach us that this God-child would have at least two Davidic characteristics. First, he would be a shepherd, offering provision and protection for his flock. And two, he would be a king, ruling over his people with truth and justice and conquering all his enemies. With these four figures in mind, let's summarize the Old Testament teaching on what it means to be a mighty man and apply that to this child of promise that Isaiah prophesies to us in Isaiah 9, verse 6. Like Gideon, 
the mighty God will be a mighty priest indwelt by the Spirit, conquering his enemies through unbelievably humble means. Second, like Jephthah, he will be a mighty prophet, born in humble circumstances and spending his life in physical and spiritual exile. Third, like Boaz, he will be a mighty husband, obeying the law fully and redeeming his bride completely. And fourth, like David, he will be a mighty shepherd king, protecting his flock and conquering all his enemies. But there's a catch here. Each of these figures, with the exception of Boaz, has recorded for them in the scriptures a horrific moral failure. The end of their lives that leaves these figures and their families scarred, shattered, and broken. Gideon collected a gold tax on the people of Israel and smelted the gold he collected into an idol, which the author of Judges describes as a snare of idolatry to all Israel. Jephthah made a rash vow, which led him to have to sacrifice his own daughter. David committed adultery with the wife of what we may assume was one of his closest friends, and then had that friend killed to cover up the crime. These mighty men, mighty as they were, godly as they were, were still just that, men. Men tainted by the sin of Adam and their very natures. Men who, despite their faith, remained imperfect. Their stories end in a shroud of sin and darkness for a reason. A reason that is not lost on Isaiah. These men's stories do not finish well because the author of Scripture is trying to teach us that the true and better mighty man will not have these besetting sins. He will not, like us, be so easily entangled by the snares of the evil one. He will not fall prey to idolatry, to rash vows, to envy, to adultery. Why? Because the true and better mighty man is, in fact, the true and better mighty God man. The differentiating factor between Gideon, Jephthah, Boaz, and David, and the mighty child of Isaiah 9 is this. In him the fullness of deity dwells. He and his father are one. Whoever has seen this child has seen God. This is the miracle of the incarnation. This is why we celebrate Christmas. True God of true God. Light from light eternal. Embracing the virgin's womb. Being found in appearance as a child, he humbled himself to the manger stall, delivered by a carpenter and attended by 
barnyard animals at his birth. The only visitors to this humble maternity ward were dirty shepherds, which seems odd and unfitting at first until you recall the profession of this boy's father, David. But perhaps the even greater miracle is that the mighty God did not cease to be the mighty God when he assumed the infirm flesh of Adam's race. Rather, he fulfilled his purpose in full at every turn, proving himself to be the true and better mighty God-man, just as Isaiah foretold. Let us look then and see how the true and better mighty man, Isaiah's mighty God, fulfills the shadows of him that we see in Gideon, Jephthah, Boaz, and David. Like Gideon, the mighty God-man is a priest offering once and for all the atoning sacrifice that could never be accomplished by the blood of bulls and goats. Like Gideon, the mighty God-man was indwelt by the Spirit, demonstrating before our eyes at his baptism when the Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove, enabling him and empowering him to his work. Like Gideon, the mighty God-man conquered his enemies not by the strength of armies, but by the power of God himself. Like Jephthah, the mighty God-man was born under circumstances of questionable morality to an unmarried woman. Like Jephthah, the mighty God-man lived his life in exile, first in Egypt as a child, and then as a man having no home in which he could lie down and rest his head. Like Jephthah, the mighty God-man was a prophet, both declaring and embodying in his very flesh the full and final word of God to Israel and to the nations. Like Boaz, the mighty God-man was a perfect law keeper, not abolishing but fulfilling all that the Old Testament contained. Like Boaz, the mighty God-man was a kinsman redeemer, redeeming for himself a bride bought with his own blood. Like David, the mighty God-man was a good shepherd, calling his sheep, who in turn hear his voice as he provides, as he protects them from harm. And finally, like David, the mighty God-man is a king, ruling over his people with truth and justice and making his enemies a footstool for his feet. Isaiah 9-6 pronounces to us the coming of the mighty God in the form of a baby. And in so doing, Isaiah ties together the stories of two women. The first woman was deceived, and she ate and plunged the world into darkness. Yet, by the gospel grace of God, she carried a promise A promise that a child would be born to her, a son would be given to her, and this child would be mighty, mighty enough to tread upon the head of the serpent and reverse the curse that she had brought into the world. 4,000 years later, the first woman's hope 
was fulfilled, realized by another woman who held the head treading mighty God in her arms. Imagine being Mary. You know the scriptures. You know the prophecy. You know the promise made to your first mother so long ago as she was banished from paradise. And now you hold the key to the garden in your arms. Paradise regained is looking up into your eyes in a cold barn in Bethlehem. Seraphim, shepherds, sages, all bearing witness to you that this little boy is the head treader promised to and prayed for by Eve. And so as his mother, you watch him tread. He treads as he is circumcised, obeying the law from his infancy. He treads as he teaches the scribes and sages in the temple. He treads as he grows in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. He treads as he faces that ancient dragon in the desert, starved in body, but feasting in soul upon the precious bread of the word of God. He treads as he is baptized, confirming and signifying that he is not only your son, but the true son of God. He treads as he feeds thousands with bread and wine at weddings and in fields. He treads as he walks on water in calm storms, proving that he is Lord of all creation. He treads as he wraps his waist with a towel, coming not to be served, but to serve and to wash the feet of his friends. He treads as he dines and drinks with them, instituting the holy sacraments of his new covenant. He treads as he prays, not my will, but his will be done. He treads as he is led silently like a lamb to the slaughter, opening not his mouth. He treads as he is beaten, his very bones exposed, though not one is broken. He treads as he drags the very instrument of his death up the hill of the skull, bearing Mary your curse. For cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He treads as he is lifted up like the snake in the wilderness. He treads as he cries out, it is But as he gives up his spirit, before your watching eyes, surrounded by darkness with the bleeding of the Passover lambs ringing in your ears, a question for Mary remains for us. Mary, did you doubt? Did you wonder if the witness of the seraphim, the shepherds, and the sages some 33 years ago was all for naught? Is your bloody boy hanging lifeless on a piece of wood really the head treader? How can a dead man conquer? How can a dead man assume 
his father's throne. How can a dead man be the mighty God? And perhaps in some small way, the serpent whispered again in the ear of the woman, did God really say? Did God really say peace on earth and good will to men? Can you imagine her grief? Watching her son, the son whom she truly believed would be the one to crush the head of the serpent and reverse Eve's curse, being laid in a stone-cold tomb. If ever something could cause your faith to waver, I suppose it would be that. But then again, Mary was a godly woman. Perhaps she knew. Perhaps she knew that Yahweh would not forsake her son's soul to Sheol, that he would not allow her son to see corruption. Perhaps she understood that the serpent must bruise her son's heel before he could crush the serpent's head. Perhaps she knew that her son was not merely a mighty man like Gideon and Jephthah and Boaz and David, but that he was, in fact, the mighty God. So then imagine her joy upon seeing her son, Jesus, Mary's son, yet Mary's Lord, having lowered his now bruised heel upon the head of the serpent one final time as he walked, living and breathing out of the tomb, demonstrating once and for all that he is, in fact, the mighty God, stealing the serpent, defeating death, and guaranteeing that, like him, you too, Mary, will rise. And there as he rises, the might of Gideon and Jephthah, Boaz and David being fulfilled in the power of God, Jesus Christ proves himself to be all that his ancestors were and more. He proved himself a mighty priest by sacrificing himself as the atonement for sin and ascending to the Father's right hand to intercede for his people. He proved himself a mighty prophet by declaring the gospel of peace on earth and goodwill toward men, for by his blood we have peace with God, and by his life we therefore now dread no condemnation. He proved himself to be a mighty husband, redeeming once and for all a precious bride, his church, who even now, right here, is invigorated by his his life coursing through our veins. And finally, he proved himself a mighty king by crushing Satan, sin, and death and making them a footstool beneath his feet. The manger sits in the shadow of the cross. And of the empty tomb. Jesus was born to die and then to rise again. For mild he laid his glory by, born that men no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, 
glory to the newborn king.